Well, it's a rare treat on discovering music when the composer whose music we're discovering is both alive and also in the room with us. And so it is with the celebrated Australian composer, Brett Dean. And it's also fitting that the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, BCMG, are here with him to perform his music because it's for them that the second of these pieces, Wolflieder, was written. And they'll be joined by soprano Claire Booth for that. The first of the two pieces we're exploring is called Recollections. Now, this year alone, Brett Dean's opera Bliss gets its UK premiere at the Edinburgh International Festival, and here at the Cheltenham Festival, he's featured artist, appearing not just as a composer, but also as a conductor in this Discovering Music, and also as a viola player. And that's where he really started his musical life, playing the viola for 14 years with the Berlin Philharmonic. And so he turned relatively late in his life to composition. Brett Dean's music is very much alive to the world. He looks everywhere for inspiration, to the environment in pieces like his pastoral symphony, in his opera Bliss to literature and the Australian writer Peter Carey. And there are also all sorts of varied themes and preoccupations that run through his music and recur. And in these two pieces, we're going to encounter two of those. One of them is memory, which crops up in the work of miniatures called Recollections. And the second of those, which is particularly pertinent to this year's Cheltenham Festival, is Madness. Three composers have anniversaries being celebrated at the festival this year who had bad mental health, one might say, Schumann, Wolf, and also Gesualdo. And both Wolf and Gesualdo have been hugely uh, influential to Brett Dean's music. And we'll be hearing his song cycle, Wolf Leader. So please welcome Brett Dean. Brett, welcome. The first piece that we're going to be looking at is called Recollections. Um, yeah. Tell us briefly how this came about, who you wrote it for. Well, Recollections was also a festival piece. It was commissioned by the Heimbach Festival in Germany. It's a small town near Cologne. Concerts there take place in a pump room as well, as it turns out. It's part of an old hydroelectric power station. And uh, it was commissioned by the artistic director of that festival, Lars Vogt, the well-known pianist. The brief was basically, you know, a collection of the instrumentalists that would be there, and this was the, the kind of combination that I was fascinated by. So we have single strings, horn, clarinet, piano and percussion. Yeah. And when we met about a week or so ago to talk about this music, we asked you to pick a few bars of one of the six movements of recollections that would just give a, a kind of insight into the way in which you write. So let's hear the ones that you've picked. Okay, well then this is the opening of the fourth movement called Relic. So why did you pick that movement? What, what in particular about that opening of Relic? Well, I, I felt that this was music that was sparse enough to actually explore something that's very important for me in my compositional process, and that is layers of sound. And this is sort of gives us a fairly clear picture of how a sonority like this is actually built up. How did you come to write like that? I mean, why, why is layering so important to you? Well, it's largely because my, my compositional development, although I studied purely classically and I played in this well-known band and so on, came from a, an unexpected and different direction. Namely, I was encouraged into the world of composition by a rock musician friend from Sydney. And we started out by just improvising together. His name's Simon Hunt. 
and we did a lot of multi-tracking of things in studios. And it was through his encouragement and, and his input that got me, you know, bitten by the compositional bug, as it were. And a lot of that experience was in studios, where you sort of evolve the piece layer by layer, track by track. And so a lot of my very first pieces were, in fact, well, my opus one, if you like, was a piece for five violas that I played all the parts myself. <laughs> Over a, a, yeah, a rather <laughs> dingy um, studio above a chemist in, uh, in Bondi in Sydney. So, you know, it was not the sort of glamour world of concert halls, but it was, you know, the sort of grungy world of cheap recording studios, really. <laughs> but a really interesting way in, because with electronic equipment, you can take things apart and piece them together and take them away again, which I suppose you don't have the luxury of with pen and paper. Well, of course, yeah, exactly. And, and when I then finally got the opportunity to write pieces for concert, at first I was still looking towards, you know, layering things and wanting to sort of have a whole lot of phantom instruments on the stage, but then I realised I needed to discipline myself and write music that was performable live, but nevertheless something of that layering stayed. Okay, well let's break down what we've just heard and okay. hear how the different components yeah, are put let's, together. Yeah, let's take then, for example, the very beginning with just the horn and the clarinet. So that's one layer, yeah. so to speak. And then we have another, these string figures. This, there's a little note in the score, angle tremolo, yeah. which is tremolo with the bow angled. At, a, at an angle across the string. So you get a, a touch of those pitches, but you also get a lot of surface noise. And in the double bass, uh, I've asked the double bass to, to play a, a non-tone tremolo, a toneless tremolo. It's a bit like sort of musical air conditioning. Um, <laughs> Let's so, hear how those fit together. Yeah, so then. this is then bar three. Then the upper strings come in. And we can add in then the uh, clarinet and horn. And the tuned gongs as well. So each instrument and set of instruments has their own music in a way, and this all kind of creates this rather ethereal sound world. That's the intention anyway. <laughs> so yeah. this is the fourth movement that we've just heard at the beginning of, called Relic. We'll have a listen to the others now. But I mean, this title, Relic, and the whole title of the sixth movement work, Recollections, clearly it's all about memory. Yeah. Uh, why is memory so important to you as an idea to work with, in terms of how it relates to music? Well, I think memory's a vital component of music. One often talks about how popular music is very linked to memory, and you know, you remember what year it was according to what was top of the pops at the time, and uh, certainly for older folk such as myself, you kind of remember certain Beatles songs or various, you know, things that were popular at the time. But I think also, as much as anything else in classical music too, certain pieces of music can get very linked with a certain time in one's life, certain performances perhaps, but also, of course, listening to a piece of music depends on also material being remembered and brought back later in a piece of music so that the formal structure actually makes sense. And so that signposting thing is a very important point for a composer. How do you sort of make a gesture, a motive, a melody for example, potent as a melodic uh, or at least a motivic device without perhaps hammering it down everyone's throat. It's a very, very pertinent thing. But also I, I notice as my own parents get older as well, one is very aware of memories of family, of also failing memory or, or how memory changes events, how it colours them, how you perhaps look through 
rose-coloured glasses or how, you, on the other hand, you might remember something as much worse than it in fact was. And so this piece deals with those things too. And it looks at all of those, I mean, from different angles. What you said about having an idea which we remember as we go through the piece and which then repeats, a brilliant example of that is in the first movement, which is called Essence. Let's hear the beginning of, yeah. of Essence, which opens Recollections. Now, you said you don't want to hammer a motif home too much, but the, <laughs> the joy of this programme is that we can hammer it home a little bit. Could we yeah. just hear that, that clarinet melody, which is so important to this piece? You can hear there those multiphonics at the end. Then there's a sort of slightly contrasting section between the piano and the horn. We'll hear the movement complete in just a moment, but this piece strikes me as being a perfect example of the musical miniature. And in a sense, this is a collection of six miniatures. What do you have to be careful of, or what are your kind of main preoccupations when you're working on a miniature? Well, one of my early mentors, teachers, if you like, when I started out more seriously with composition, at a time when I was still in the orchestra in Germany, was um, Georges Kortag. Hungarian he was, composer. Uh, yeah, and he was artist in residence with the orchestra and in Berlin at the time. And, of course, he's an absolute master miniaturist. I mean, he writes larger-scale works too, or larger-scale works that are, in fact, made up of many short movements. So I got to know his music in, you know, very intimately and intensely and worked on it with him and also worked with him on other people's music and on my own music. And I was fascinated by his mastery of small forms and in some ways it's harder to you know strip everything back so that you don't sort of tip say the too boat. much yeah. yeah and so this was in a way also one of several pieces of mine in which i've tried bit by bit after having written quite a few large-scale pieces to start with sort of stripping it back to, to work on miniature form. This particular movement is, in a sense, like a kind of very small-scale sonata form movement. And the opening motive in the clarinet then gets picked up by the other instruments, as if to say memories can sort of encourage and bring on other memories. And before you know it, looking at a photograph of old family photograph or snapshot or something, all of a sudden you remember, oh, that's right, she was married to so-and-so and they had so, you know, three children, and before you know it, you're in this other world. And, and so that motive gets picked up by the cello, the bass, the piano, and develops the piece, albeit in a very short space of time. And then at the end, it closes neatly with the clarinet, just sort of reminiscing, yeah. in a sense. So that was Essence, the first movement. Um, let's just listen very briefly to a couple of extracts from some of the other movements. The second one is called Don't Wake Mother. What's the origin of this piece? Well, the origin of the title is, in fact, Enid Blyton, which is not a normal source for me. But um, <laughs> it was part of some very early piano pieces. I mentioned Simon Hunt and our f my first explorations into composing and our activities together we formed a duo called frame cut frame and 
As I said, he encouraged me to start writing pieces and write pieces I then did. Um, and this was one of three very short piano pieces that were then premiered by Mela Stockhausen, the daughter of famous composer. This then became a kind of scurrying little thing as if you're remembering back to childhood and games that were played in the, in the middle of the night or whatever. And again, sort of in a way, memories that were perhaps a lot more demonic than they may have really been in their essence. I loved the title too, this kind of <laughs> quirky naughtiness somehow. Let's hear the very beginning of that then. One of the key things I imagine when putting together a set of miniatures, and it's a beautiful example in Recollections, is contrast between the different miniatures. Absolutely, so I want yeah. to just look at the difference between Incident, which is the fifth movement, and the third, Dead of Night. So let's start with Incident, movement number five. What incident were you thinking of? Anyone in particular? Yeah, well, he was asking me this the other day. <laughs> there wasn't any particular incident, but it was uh, important for me. As you say, contrast is important. And... I realised that this set of pieces needed, simply needed another fast movement. This is more troubling than the scurrying of childhood. And so whatever the incident was, I don't think it was altogether a pleasant one, although it has its moments also of kind of carefree abandon in a way. Adrenaline pumped. Yes, a bit of power in that memory, I think. By way of complete contrast, then, Dead of Night, which is the third movement. The night has inspired so many composers, you know, from Dowland to Bartok and Schumann and Britten. And what does it mean for you? Why did you pick the nighttime? It's interesting. I, I must say, I, I also think that my music is more night music than middle of the day music. It's often been the time where I feel that ideas come more readily. There's something about the night that puts us into a different space. Also, the telephone doesn't ring as much, so you, know, you can actually concentrate on an idea without as many distractions. Do so you work at night? I do, yeah. Earlier on, we heard about the way in which you layer together different musics. Um, in the dead of night, there's a moment where we can hear a completely different technique in which you have a motif and you pass it between different instruments. Um, so let's hear the motif I'm talking about, which is played by the double bass playing pizzicato. And then let's put that in context. It gets passed from the double bass, then to the horn, and then to the cello, also playing pizzicato. And if your memories are working well, you'll recognize what the clarinet plays as well. So a memory of what the clarinet had played in the very first movement there. 
That was the third movement, The Dead of Night. The fourth is called uh, Relic, which we heard part of at the very beginning, with the tuned gongs and that layering effect. And then we come to the last movement called Locket, which I suppose is the most obviously associated with memory in a way. Sure, yeah. It starts off with these extraordinary sounds, and which I, I presume you discover as a musician working, messing around with other musicians. Glissandis, Tam Tam played with Super Ball on a stick, which very kindly holding up. And also, you said to me the other day that every uh, string player should have a timpani stick in their case. Well, certainly so every bass player. Every yeah. bassist. <laughs> so the bass player plays with a timpani stick. I mean, how do you come up with these, with these effects? Well, I mean, I, I played in an orchestra with wonderful colleagues and very generous colleagues too, and uh, I'd just rock up to them and ask them to try things out. And also, you know, that was a, a two-way street. I remember having a chat and actually doing some, some film music with a wonderful Finnish bass player from the, the Philharmonic, Jana Saxila, who said, you know, have you ever heard double bass with a timpani stick? And so, you know, it's, it's sort of a sharing. I mean, I don't know that any of these sounds are utterly new in the way that, uh, well, I was going to say Bartok Pizzicato, but in fact Bartok Pizzicato was invented by Mahler, so it sort of gets shared around. But um, you know, it's just having a, an ear open for sonorities and also, I guess, having worked so much in a studio where you can actually do anything with a sound through whatever processes. I'm always keen to try and get something approaching the wealth and possibilities of a studio with live instruments. So Let's hear what that sounds like then, the um, double bass played with the, with the timpani, timpani stick. stick. Right. Very Mingus, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hear also that double bass with the tam-tam as well. Yeah. So now let's hear the beginning of this movement because those effects and the glissandi and the strings work together to make a sort of, uh, I suppose, a very ethereal and nebulous sound world into which something then comes. But let's just yeah. hear the beginning. Now the next thing that happens, which we won't hear now until mm. the full performance, is a quotation. Mm. Tell us about it and why you chose to put it in. A locket is an object of memory, really. It's something in which you might keep a lock of hair or, or a photograph or something. And, and so the locket of this piece is in fact also a found object. It's a piano piece by Clara Schumann. And it was, after a lot of searching for exactly the right found object, it just sort of offered what I needed. Quotation is an interesting thing. It sort of plays a role in the piece in the second half as well. Golf leader. And has played an important part for my compositional processes. That's partly also because of this busying with the, the canon that I've been doing all these years. So um, it's perhaps also a way for myself to put into context this world of music that I've been immersed in since I was a kid. But we'll keep that one for... Let's keep that till yes. the end. So just to recap, the six movements of Recollection are called Essence, Don't Wake Mother, Dead of Night, Relic, Incident and Locket. And we're about to hear its UK premiere. Brett Dean conducts BCMG in his own Recollections.
What we just heard was the UK premiere of Recollections by Brett Dean, given here in the Pitville Pump Rooms at the Cheltenham Festival 2010 and performed by BCMG with Brett Dean conducting. And we heard that little quote of Clara Schumann very movingly in Locket. Now, Brett, musical quotation comes up yet again in Wolfleader, which is the next work of yours that we're going to hear. In a slightly different way, you frame the piece with these two songs of Wolf. In general, with musical quotation, what's the idea for you? Because you've done it in plenty of other pieces, including Carlo, which is your piece based on Gesualdo. Well, as soon as you sort of bring in quotation, a lot of people then start a kind of postmodernist or anti-postmodernist diatribe and um, that it's, you know, lacking originality or so on. I mean, as I said earlier, it's, it's for me in many ways a coming to terms with music that has been important to me and it's exploring not only someone else's music but also their person and for them to be in the room with us, there's nothing quite like having his or her music to represent their voice. In both Gesualdo and also Wolf, it's then sort of looking under the microscope at that music and gleaning aspects of it that are useful for me as, as compositional tools. And strikingly in both cases, it's often a kind of strange chromatic sliding, both in, in the Wolf that we're about to hear and also in the Gesualdo that I've used in Carlo that um, sort of takes me also into a different harmonic space. They're both very different composers, I mean, Gesualdo and Wolf, but they both have this really unique chromatic sound world. I mean, perhaps that's something about living slightly on the fringes or on the edge of society in a way, that, that they pushed music slightly further than, than others might, perhaps. I must say that one of the first things I did before I sort of launched really into composition was to make arrangements. I was part of a, a group of players from within the, the Berlin Philharmonic called the Sharoon Ensemble and I was kind of in charge of arranging the encore pieces, for example. Of course, as soon as you even make an arrangement of someone else's music, it becomes your piece. You put your fingerprints on it and you learn so much from it and I guess it's been partly that as well, this, this busying myself with other people's scores, taking them apart a little like we're doing now and, and putting them back together in a different way that has you know, left its mark on my own music too. Well, let's take a look at Wolflieder, which is a song cycle for ensemble and soprano. And please welcome on stage Claire Booth. So there are two quotations, let's say, in this piece, and they frame it in the first and the fifth movement. And then we'll come to the three central movements in a moment, which are, I suppose, much more kind of extended, and, and they're your music, there's no Wolf in them, at least not, not technically speaking. The first movement quotes the song from the Spanish songbook, Wunden trägst du mein Geliebter, which means, basically, you are wounded, my beloved Lord, and you suffer pain, would that I could bear it in your stead. Claire, could we hear that song? There's that chromatic idea, this yeah. sort of falling figure, which comes most prominently in the piano part. Clive, could we just hear those bars 16 and 17? That's going to figure quite strongly, that idea, 
So the opening of this piece is, is essentially a distillation of that song as you've described it to me. Yes, it's sort of putting it under the microscope and checking out its DNA, really, um, <laughs> and expanding it, contracting it, and yeah, just sort of putting it into a different uh, space. The next movement is the first of the three central ones, and this is called Brief an Josef, which means a letter to Josef or Joseph, who was a friend of Wolf's. Um, Brett, how did you pick this bit of text? As I got into the idea, I f came across this letter, which in just a few lines summed up the very sad state of, of somebody that's obviously losing their grasp. Wolf's losing his way with those that he loves and those that love him, and they don't seem to understand him. And it's incredibly sad and isolating. You, you get the sense of somebody who's obviously losing their grip bit by bit. It strikes me that this music, and particularly the vocal writing, are extremely expressionistic. Is that the kind of thing you were going for? Well, certainly, Wolf was writing in a time where music was being stretched. Bearing in mind this is only you know, a few years before Schoenberg came along with his first atonal pieces, and he was obviously also a, a close associate of Mahler. It seemed also very much the language that, that aspects of his own music is, is sort of leading towards. And it's also a fascinating language, particularly that early free atonal music of, of the Viennese school, which somehow was for me, you know, in many ways the greatest music that came out of that time, more so than the, the straight sort of serial music. And in a sense, music that I still think, or a, a kind of language that still has a lot of potential. Let's take a look at, at some of the ways in which you reflect the torment in Wolf's mind as he writes these words, that it's my lot to hurt all those who love me and whom I love. And there are all sorts of colour effects that you use musically. Could we hear the oboe uh, demonstrating multiphonics? Brett, what exactly is going on there when we use the word multiphonics? Well, multiphonics on any wind instrument are when the, the combination of fingering of position of the mouth on the reed lead to engaging other notes from the harmonic sequence. And so it's, in effect, the, the one way in which a, an oboe, for example, can play more than one note at a time. They have an intriguing, you know, kind of mysterious quality. Also, they're, they're kind of unpredictable to some extent. 
and they vary hugely from instrument to instrument, from player to player. I love multiphonics also because they have an indeterminate quality to them. You can't quite tell what instrument's playing mm. them, which is wonderful for us composers, you know, to sort of take sounds into a different realm. There's another lovely effect that you use with the alto flute, what's known as a timbre trill. Yes, which is obviously just two different fingerings or, or often even more than two fingerings for the same note, a bit like on a string instrument playing the same note on a different string. And again, it, it just disturbs what is otherwise a calm sea. It just adds a little mm. bit of a ripple and a disturbance. Then there are all sorts of other things that go on. The piano plays at one point with a plectrum and there are some wonderful guttural notes right down in the lower registers of the trombone. Let's hear how all of those fit together in the beginning of Brief and Josef, the second movement. Then the voice comes in, and there's an interruption of what feels rather like a chorale, in a sense, in the wind, and you've marked it ethereal. Another example of the way in which you layer different things. And on top of that, an arabesque-like figure from the alto flute. Why did you want to add that at that moment? There's something about the, the way it sits in the middle of that chord which is utopian in its, in its balancing and that was quite deliberate to sort of get this sense of there's something wanting, struggling to be heard there, what is it? And there's something about that that, that obviously suits the, the psychodrama of the, the state of mind we're talking about, this wanting to burst out or, or be heard in some way. So there's a sense of deliberate struggle there in a way. Let's hear how they fit together. Now, the third and fourth movement are the biggest by far, and you could say they're rather substantial operatic shainers, perhaps. And I know that you've said that you were considering writing the opera Bliss and wanted at this point to kind of try out various ideas with, with larger, slightly more operatic scenes. The first of these large movements, um, you had somebody make up the text. Yeah, that's How right. How did you put it together? Yeah, a, a friend who is both a musician and a doctor, a woman by the name of Jana de Boniface, took up this cause of mine um, and looked into exactly what were the contemporary descriptions of what Wolf was going through at that time. And so she writes of different sorts of paralysis and... Megalomania as megalomania well. Megalomania and a weakening or softening of the brain and so on. So used contemporary late 19th century medical talk. Combining that with quotes attributed to Wolf in those dreadful last five years of his life where he was in an institution. He would, would occasionally get visits from friends and family members and he was completely lost by that stage. He was also jealous of Gustav Mahler and had actually built up in his own mind that he was to be the next director of the Vienna State Opera. And there's, I'm not sure whether it's just legend or there's some fact in it, but he was apparently led to the institution under the belief that he was in fact going to sign his contract with 
the opera. So he went dressed in tails to meet what was then the start of a very long, slow, sad decline. And what's fascinating in this movement is the way in which, although you don't characterise it quite so clearly as two different characters, you have textually these, these essentially different characters of Wolf, losing his mind and assuming that he's deposed Mahler, and Wolf's doctor sort of noting down, ah, speech paralysis, limpness, progressive paranoid megalomania. Yeah, and then of course the moments where he's actually very confident in saying, I am the director of the Vienna State Opera. And at one point apparently he, he claimed that he was the god Jupiter. And so those moments also have their own sense of kind of bravura, I guess. And in those moments, are you, are you sending him up at all, caricaturing him? or is, uh, Certainly not the intention. I think with this piece, with other pieces, is trying to, to get into a kind of psycho, you know, into the mind. It's certainly not comic, I don't think. Certainly doesn't come across like that. It was just also fascinating to try and consider what the state of mental health care was in Vienna in the late... 1800s, early 1900s. That's a tragedy in itself, probably, by today's standards. Let's move on then to the largest of the movements, Als Hugo Wolf. This is a totally fascinating text. I want to know where you found this Charles Bukowski poem. Yes. Hugo Wolf went mad while eating an onion. Yes. Um, strangely enough, although he's an American writer, I first got to know this poem in a German translation. And it was, in fact, that that set off the interest in writing this piece. And you uh, set it in German? In, in, yeah, in German and then I, I realised then by linking it with some of his own original songs, it was necessary to have the whole thing in German. And then in the course of the Bukowski poem, he's kind of channelling Wolf's imaginary landlady, who at one point says, yeah, well, look, he, he may be famous and one day they'll no doubt be very sad that he dies and they'll bury him in the rain and the whole music world will be upset but at the moment all that interests me is that he pays his rent or gets the hell out of here and in Bukowski's typically irreverent style he has the most vivid sonic imagination and uh, it's quite a wild poem this is probably a bit more on the sarcastic side mm. but not necessarily at Wolf's expense um, more the the crazy landlady Let's hear the beginning. The first line is Hugo Wolf went mad while eating an onion and writing his 253rd song. on which Claire was singing Hugo Wolf, Hugo Wolf, um, mm. is really important, an F-sharp. It comes back again and again, and it runs as a sort of, you know, uh, a vein, I suppose, through the whole piece. Obsession, I suppose, right. really, if anything. I mean, we're talking about somebody who's really losing their mind, and, and the thing about those states of mind is that you often will grab onto something, probably for dear life, because it's the only thing that, that makes any sense. So, in this case, it's an F-sharp. Don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will hear that it comes back again and again. Then there's a wonderful, surreal image in the Bukowski poem. It was rainy April and the worms came out of the ground humming Tannhäuser. And there are some wonderful worm-like noodlings around notes that each of the instruments have at that point. You weren't tempted to put in a little Tannhäuser quote from Wagner's opera? Well, we talked about quotation earlier, and there are moments when quotation is just what you need, and there are moments when you avoid it. And uh, somehow, 
that would have, I think, confused the issue hugely. And then for me, a really crucial moment in this movement comes when she stops all of that surreal gabbling and she stops for a moment of pathos and says, someday he'll be famous and they'll bury him in the rain. At the very end of that movement, before we touch briefly on the final Wolf quotation, something rather unusual happens, and looking at it in the score, it reminded me very much of Mahler. It says, schnelles March tempo, yeah. a quick um, march tempo. Mm. And Mahler used a lot of marches in his symphonies. Is that an allusion back to Mahler? There are certainly lots of moments yeah. where you, in a rather sort of German late romantic style, you write very specific... German directions in the score. Yeah, it's not so much Mahler directly, although it, it is interesting that, that it, it ends up sounding quite Mahlerian. But it again goes back to what may be legend, maybe an embellishment of fact. But apparently on the day that he was carted off to the hospital, there was a carnival. And a friend of Wolf's who was party to this whole situation remarked on the tragic irony of him being taken to what was then the end of him in terms of public life and, and the start of his decline with this sort of happy, you know, sort of uh, carnival atmosphere. It's more trying to paint a, a sad picture on a street, really. Let's move now to the final of the five movements, Dir du Gott gebarst. And again, this is one of the songs from Wolf's Spanish songbook. Lady, presumably the Virgin Mary, I turn to thee alone that this anguish and this horror may have an end, that death may find me unafraid, and the light of the heavenly pastures not blind me. Could we hear the original Wolf? Mark contrast to the way in which you set the first Wolf song, what do you do here? Well, in the first one, I kept the voice intrinsically linked to its original piano accompaniment. Here, I've taken the voice right away from Wolf. It's sort of disembodied and floating in a very different sort of world.
you. So that's how Wolf's line fits into this final movement. And again, as we heard at the beginning, that falling chromatic figure of Wolf's from the opening song, this sort of slowly disintegrates as the piece ends and his mental state collapses completely. How do you see the whole arc of the work? Well, the piece has moments of energy and passion and frustration and anger and all sorts of things, but essentially, it is this kind of downward spiral that might be a rather uh, depressing sort of basis for a piece of music. There's enormous poetry in that though. And in choosing the second of the two Spanish songbook settings of Wolf's, I couldn't go past the lines, unverloren bin ich doch, willst du mich retten? I am still not lost if thou wilt save me. It just seemed to be the, the perfect way to sort of um, bring the curtain down on this little mini-drama. Brett Dean, thank you very much. My Let's pleasure. hear Wolf leader Claire Booth singing with the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, conducted by the composer. <laughs> 